1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 31. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You you may have noticed in various churches um, that there's all sorts of different styles of ecclesiastical garb. Some ministers wear a dressing gown to church. Um, Its proper name is an alb, by the way, but I've always thought of them as a dressing gown. Um, Some wear a white clerical collar. Uh, Some wear a stole or a scarf. Some wear the bishop's pointy hat. I think it's called a mitre. Uh, Some will be dressed in black from head to toe. Some will wear a very neat and very proper suit and tie. And I sort of started thinking, you know, well, maybe we here at Bush Disciples... Maybe we need to have some kind of suitable ecclesiastical outfit for our preachers to wear. And I thought, yep, that's what we need. We need something that, so that people can immediately identify you as being a Christian. So I sort of set my mind to this and, and I sort of come up with a bit of a design. And then I gave that design to Robin and she worked pretty hard on it yesterday. And um, we came up with this. I reckon a jester's hat um, will immediately fit the image that most people hold of Christians. Um, And fair dinkum, a large percentage of the population reckon that anyone who would give up their Sunday morning to go to church instead of go and do stuff that other stuff that everybody else does, well, that's just utterly foolish. Why would anyone pray to an unseen God? And more crazy still, these Christian people expect this God to answer them. And, of course, in their eyes, anyone who would make important life decisions based on some perceived guidance from God, well, that's crazy. And to believe in life after death, 
to believe in the resurrection of Jesus and the miracles and the thought of a coming day of judgment when we all have to stand before this God, to them it's all just fairy tale nonsense. I hate to break it to you, but if you can't handle the thought of being thought of as a fool, then you can't handle being a Christian in Australia today. It's that simple. At least not if you're going to mix with anyone who the world would consider as being wise. Because in the eyes of the world, this is exactly how they see us. You don't have to wear a jester's hat to be thought of as a fool. All you have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and set your heart on eternity. All you have to do is count this life as worthless compared to the eternal glory that we wait for. And all you have to do is deny yourself and immediately you'll be thought of as a fool. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You know, that got me thinking. I don't know why somebody like me would ever become a believer. Because, well, I don't, I don't see myself as a fool. The way that my mind works, I'm a very logical thinker. Uh, the subjects that I excelled in at school, and I'm not, not wanting to boast, but I actually did do well in these subjects at school, was science and maths. That's my background. And, and I'm a naturally sceptical person. While others will fork out their hard-earned money for the latest version of snake oil to cure all of their ills or to fix all of their farming problems or to help them to get rich quick, I just want to see some scientific or mathematical evidence to support the claims that are being made before I get on board. While charlatans get rich by deceiving the gullible, and it might surprise you sometimes who the gullible are, I find myself shaking my head in disbelief, thinking, how can you believe such nonsense? And yet, I firmly believe in the Lord God Almighty. I firmly believe in the message of the cross, that God determined to save all those who would believe in him by having his own son mocked, scourged, and nailed to a tree. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. I believe that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. I believe that he descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. I believe this. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, that is the whole church united together. I believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And then we get that word, Amen. I believe this. Amen means I truly believe this with all of my heart, with all of my mind. And nothing is more important to me than, than this. But why would anyone like me ever to begin to believe? Those who are wise in, in the world's eyes would brand me as being gullible. Um, and they'd say, well, you've been deceived. Or maybe 
They'd say, oh no, you're, you're a pastor, you're a preacher, you're one of the offenders, you're the one who's deceiving others, you're the one who are deceiving those who have weak minds. Because the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We seem to have reached an age where prominent academics make a name for themselves and they rake in the megabucks um, and they even gain celebrity status by standing on the platform of anyone who believes in God is an idiot and the world would be a far better place without religion. They go beyond atheism, right? You've all heard the word atheism or atheist. That simply means someone who does not believe in God. They go beyond atheism to anti-theism. That means they are against God and they are against anyone who does believe in God. And that's a term that they choose for themselves, by the way. Richard Dawkins tells the world what to think of Christians in his best-selling books with titles like The God Delusion and The Blind Watchmaker. Christopher Hitchens is another prominent God mocker, at least he was until he died, I wouldn't like to be in his shoes right now. He wrote the book, God is Not Great. And I'm just wondering what he thinks about that uh, perspective now. Um, but he was an, one of these well-known people who would debate against Christians. So this is where my mind goes when I read this passage. Because it's telling us that the educated elite of this world will see Christianity as foolish. And they do. And today they do. The wise man, the philosopher. Uh, by the way, do you know what PhD stands for? You know when somebody studies and they sort of get their bachelor's degree and they get their master's degree and then you get a PhD. Justin knows what it is. What's PhD stand for, Justin? Yeah, it's a doctorate of philosophy. Okay? Um, so the wise man, the philosopher, the debater of this age, in our society they are mostly against Christianity because they're against the very existence of God himself. But that wasn't the case in Paul's day. And particularly in Corinth, the debater, the, the philosopher, wasn't against the idea of there being a God. In fact, they had a plethora of gods of their own, and there was nothing that they enjoyed more than to get together with the other debaters and the other philosophers and to discuss all of their ideas of all of their gods together. Now, it wasn't that they were against there being a God. It was something peculiar to Christianity that they saw as being foolish. When they considered the gospel, there were two particular aspects of the gospel that they outright rejected. The first thing they outright rejected was they could not understand that a God could ever be put to death by a human. The first thing they out rejected was the whole message of the cross. Why would a God allow himself to be killed by a human? Or, or even before that, why would a God ever even become a human? Why would he allow himself to do that? And why would God endure pain and suffering to pay for the sins of mere mortals? It's just a nonsense. The whole message of the cross to them was utter foolishness. It wasn't the concept that there was a God. The arch folly for them is the message of the cross itself. Verse 23 says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews 
and folly to Gentiles. And the second foolishness of the gospel was the insignificance, the unimpressive nature, the weakness of God's children, the weakness of those who God would call to believe. They weren't the academics. They weren't the philosophers. They weren't the clever debaters. In the eyes of the world, they were ignorant, foolish, weak, inconsequential nobodies. Paul said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. In the eyes of the world, the church is weak. It's made up of nobodies. Let me phrase that. The church is made up of nobodies. And this is why God's design, sorry, and this is by God's design. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The boasters have already been weeded out. The boasters, well, they're way too clever to believe this sort of nonsense. Wouldn't the church be such a very different sort of group of people um, if there was an aptitude test to get into it, if, or if you had to have a certain qualification to become a Christian. You know, there's certain jobs, you're not allowed to get this job unless you do this or that or gain this qualification. Imagine if there was an IQ test or, a, or, or if you had to have a high status or a big bank account to be able to be saved. The church would be very different. You see, it's only the humble and it's only the broken and it's only the contrite of heart who can be saved. None of us can stand with a proud heart and boast in the presence of God. Because God calls nobodies. God, chose, good, God called me. I'm a nobody. Are there any other nobodies here called by God? Yeah, we're nobodies. It's not those who are clever. It's not those who are influential. It's not those who have the gift of the gab and can argue convincingly who are going to be saved. It's those who believe. It's those who come to Christ with a childlike faith. And this is the great barrier to faith even today. The Jews demand signs. The Greeks demand wisdom. And it's the same today. Many people will say to you, look, I'll believe, but first you've got to prove it to me. I'll believe in God, but first you've got to prove it to me. Prove it to me with signs and wonders. Prove it to me with a miracle, and then I'll believe. But you know what Jesus said when they asked him for a sign? He said, an evil and adulterous generation. They're the ones who seek for a sign, but no sign will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. The only sign that Jesus was going to give them was his own death and resurrection. And that ended up being the very thing which became the stumbling block that prevented the Jews from believing that he was the Messiah at all. How could he be the Messiah? He was crucified and we're told, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. The Messiah can't be cursed. Prove it to me. 
Just show me a sign and I'll believe. Or show it to me with some logic. Convince me. Convince me from history. Convince me from science. Convince me from philosophy. Convince me and then I'll believe. That's not the way it works. I can't make you believe by convincing you. We believe first. It's people of faith who God saves. You believe first. And then you've got all the proof that you need. And, and this is something which is very difficult to explain to an unbeliever. But if you're a Christian, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It begins with faith. You believe. You might not be sure why you believe. But you believe. And when you believe, you experience the power of God. The power of God to transform a life, the power of God to answer prayer, the power of God to do the miraculous, the power of God to save. We believe and then we experience the power of God and we've got all the proof that we need. Our faith begins with this, I'm not sure why I believe, but I have this inner urging that I've just got to believe. No matter how nonsensical it sounds, it's just, I know I've just got to believe, it's true. Do you know where that ur inner urging comes from? It's the Holy Spirit. It's God giving you the ability to believe, calling you to, be, to believe, calling you to become his child, calling you to begin to experience the power of God. And then once we believe, how could we ever not believe ever again? When you've truly had an experience of God, you've got all the proof you need. The world will think you're weird. They might think of you as a fool. But no sorry. No sorry. You know Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, why is Paul telling this to the Corinthian church? Well, we discovered last week that there were divisions within the Corinthian church and it seems that the ways of the world and the philosophies of the world, that's a way of saying the world's way of thinking, were beginning to infiltrate the church and the church was divided. Unfortunately, we're seeing this again in the church of today. And that shouldn't be any great surprise to us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're warned about the last days and it tells us that in the last days there will be those who have the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Within churches today, uh, there is a small but, but vocal and growing group who discount the gospel as we know it and they brand it as being foolish nonsense. And they view their own theology as something wise and sensible. And they'll look down on you and I and they will pity us. Because in their eyes, we're fools to believe what we believe. We're believing in a fairy tale. They reckon we're deceived, you see, because we must have simple minds. And if only we weren't so gullible, then if we were a bit brighter, then we'd see things the way that they see things. Um, they call it progressive Christianity or progressive theology. Has anyone ever heard of it? I know some have. Uh, the arrogance of the name itself should give it up for what it is. 
I had a conversation with somebody once, and, and sadly it's not a unique conversation. I've, I've, had these, I've had several of these types of conversations over the last 10 years. Uh, it was a conversation with a man who at the time was probably in his late 50s, early 60s, and he was a leader in a church. And he's asking me about what I meant when I, when I mentioned about hearing from God. And, and I explained to him how we hear from God in, in different ways, and, and he didn't get it. I'll just wait for the plane to go. Planes are getting slower. And I explained to him in, in various ways about how we hear from God, and he didn't get it. And so I explained it again, this time a little bit simpler and a little bit slower, and I used a few more examples, and he still didn't get it. So I tried again in another way, and he still didn't get it. And we talked for quite a while, and we just couldn't connect on a spiritual level, and he just couldn't comprehend spiritual truths about how God relates to us. And I couldn't work it out until finally he said to me, Michael, you have to understand that my faith is very different now to what it was when I was a child. I don't believe in the God that I was taught about in Sunday school anymore. I've moved on from that. And then told me all about his God. A God who doesn't intervene into the world. A God who doesn't communicate with us. A God he described, sorry, a, a God who is not, not at all a spiritual, relational God who reveals himself in scriptures. He reduced God to him being at peace with himself and to doing a few good deeds for other people and having a few little sacred moments in his life. And once he told me this, I knew that somebody had introduced him to this so-called progressive theology. They don't believe that Jesus is the only way to God. They don't believe that we should believe what the Bible teaches because they reckon the Bible's just a product of its day and it's just a, a way the ancient people used to see things because they didn't know any better. Uh, they don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They don't believe that he was raised from the dead. They don't believe in supernatural power because they're not that naive. Only fools like us believe that stuff. They don't believe that Jesus died for our sins because in their view, that would make God some kind of cosmic child abuser. What kind of father would have his son killed? In fact, they don't believe that in sin at all, or that we need to repent of our sin. And in their eyes, there isn't a heaven, there definitely isn't a hell, and the key virtue that he aimed for is tolerance, so that we can all just get on with one another. The thing is... Most people I've met with who, who follow along with progressive theology view themselves as being enlightened, loving, accepting, tolerant, and they'll tell you how freeing it was for them to leave behind the old Christian teachings that they used to be told that they had to believe. But in my experience, they're anything but tolerant. They're tolerant of everyone except for anyone who might disagree with them. And they're so condescending. They feel that they've been enlightened and you poor person, you're still believing in a fairy tale. 
and they'll do their best. They'll see it as their mission in life to enlighten you to their message of unbelief. What a sad, sad regression. It's not progressive at all. It's regressive. You know what they're saying? They're saying the gospel as we've been taught, the gospel as revealed in the scriptures is foolish, but that's okay because we've got a better way. And usually they'll tell us that in our enlightened age, nobody should be expected to believe what the ancients used to believe a couple of thousand years ago. And so they see their way as the way of the future. It's an acceptable message. It's a believable message. They hold on to some of the teachings of Jesus, and they're the ones who get to decide, by the way. And they say, well, we're not going to ask people to believe in the nonsense that they shouldn't have to believe in. And so they reckon progressive theology is what's going to make the church relevant for today. And yet, you know what I've observed? At the same time, I've seen churches who hold this so-called progressive theology and, and, and who allow it to be taught. I see these churches shrinking. They get smaller and smaller and older and older and more cynical and deader and deader. And at the same time, I see churches who continue to preach the cross of Christ. I see these churches... And they're young, vibrant, alive, and growing. Why does this same old foolish gospel continue to be life for those who believe? Because it's the power of God. It always has been. It always will be. This is by which we live. Those who see themselves as wise... And the gospel is foolish, they're in a pretty bad predicament. They are perishing. That means they're headed for hell. God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The wisdom of the world says, all that Christianity stuff, nonsense, foolishness. But really, it's no joke. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. To those who believe, Christ has become wisdom. That means we don't mind being thought of as foolish because we know that God's plan is wise and we are in his plan. Christ has become our righteousness. That means all of our wrong is taken away and he makes us right. Christ has become our sanctification. That means he is transforming us. He is preparing us for glory. He is making us into a changed people. He is tuning us for righteous living. And Christ has become our redemption. That means Jesus Christ has brought us back. He loved us so much that he died for us on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. There's nothing new here. I doubt that you'll be taking away anything new today. But in Christ, are we willing to be fools in the eyes of the world because we believe? Because it's the same old story. 
There's an old hymn that says, Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Tell me the story simply as to a little child, for I am weak and weary and helpless and defiled. Tell me the story slowly that I may take it in, that wonderful redemption, God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. Tell me the story softly, with earnest tones and grave. Remember, I'm the sinner whom Jesus came to save. Tell me the story always, if you would really be, in any time of trouble, a comforter to me. Tell me the same old story when you have cause to fear that this world's empty glory is costing me too dear. And when the Lord's bright glory is dawning on my soul, tell me the old, old story. Christ Jesus makes thee whole. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your wisdom. We know that the the world very often considers even the very existence of God as utter foolishness. But Lord, we know better. Lord, we've been touched by your spirit. We've experienced the power of God. We've experienced the call and we see the proof and we know it and we believe. Lord, give us strength when the world would consider us as fools. Give us a passion for you, that you will continue to be the most important thing in our lives as we live day by day for you. In Jesus' name, amen.